Hello and welcome to Right Care at Baptist. I'm your host, Amanda Comer. We will discuss the important topics for the medical staff at Baptist. Today, you're in for a real treat and a bit of a role reversal. We have Dr. Jake Lancaster, who you may know as the host of this podcast, who will talk to us about the role of informatics in the fight against COVID. Dr. Lancaster, welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your job with Baptist? Sure. Glad to be here. I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. My main role is being that bridge between the physicians and providers and the administrative and the IT staff. And so really just trying to work to make the EMR and other technology work as effectively and efficiently as possible for our staff and giving that feedback to the, the IT staff and trying to make those changes um, that we need in order to keep improving. You certainly have a big job. So informatics has a significant presence in healthcare and even more so during the COVID pandemic. So tell us what changes have occurred at the beginning of the pandemic and how have we progressed throughout? Yeah, so gosh, early on in the pandemic, back in March, it seems like it was such a long time ago, but there was a lot of different things that we needed to do to Epic and our technology really to capture any potential patient that was coming in with COVID-19. We needed to be able to identify them early Luckily, Epic had already been working with the CDC on some of their travel screening advisories, which we were able to implement on the Baptist side fairly quickly. And so that was our, our main focus early on. And it's amazing how much time and, and effort we put into getting that process done correctly. And then, you know, it seems like three weeks later, it was completely irrelevant. But that was the main focus really in the beginning was that on that travel screening and being able to identify those patients and cohort them effectively within the hospital once we identified them. Early on, we didn't have any lab orders built out for the COVID-19 lab test. You know, that lab didn't exist within Baptist. The only way we could get it done was to do it out of the state department of health. And we actually had our system lab director have drive that, that lab specimen over there to, to get it done for our first patient. So, Building that out and adding those labs and those diagnosis codes into Epic was one of our big early challenges, just getting that information in there, you know, because early on you couldn't even diagnose a patient with COVID-19. You had to put something else down. Uh, physicians were using the older coronavirus diagnosis codes. And so we had to get all those built out. We had to develop out note templates so that physicians and others could, could document the required information that they needed to to comply with all these various state and, and federal regulations that would come out regarding telemedicine that we were just standing up as well. We also had to develop patient instructions and medication panels and, and lab panels, multiple different smart phrases. There wasn't a, a day that went by in those first few weeks where some physician from the system didn't send me requests for something to be built related to COVID-19. And we, we did, we, we turned those out fairly quickly. We bypassed a lot of our governance process early on because we knew that this was a unique event where we needed to move quickly. And so we did, and we had to walk some of that back in, in the months um, afterwards, but I, I think you know, we got what we needed in the, in the very early stages. I was very proud of the BOC team for being so responsive and, and being able to, to make these changes fairly quickly. That's what we were doing really in the early days, really focusing on 
building out all of that unique content related to COVID-19 and trying to get that into the hands of the providers as, as fast as we could. So many things we don't think about. We absolutely appreciate you and your team's adaptability um, and, and quick response, as you said, to make these changes. So you are able to provide our leadership and our providers with current trends and also future projections. Can you tell us a little bit about the current state and what the next few weeks may look like? Yeah, so that process that has evolved a lot over the past few months as well. So early on, each of our CEOs were according to their market leader, the number of patients in the ICU, the number of patients in, in a regular bed that had COVID-19. And those were being read aloud to our senior leadership team every night. And it was really hard to understand what the trends were. Sometimes they would be able to say, well, it was this yesterday, but it was this today. And you kind of get a picture about where we were going as a system. But I started just taking the that information that was reported verbally and putting it in a simple little chart, an Excel file, and uh, was able to reproduce it visually so that people could see the trends. And then we started sharing that with the providers and, and the rest of the community outside of that meeting. And finally, you know, after two or three weeks of that, our reporting team was able to automate that, which was a, a great help for me because it was, it really was a time consuming process trying to get the trend for a, every individual facility put out there on a daily basis. And, and it looks much better now. And it's been going on for several months now. And our, unfortunately, our trends are, are still going up, although, you know, it, it's kind of waxed and waned in certain locations and, you know, it'll get hot in one area and cold in another. Other, but the overall trend for the system has still been going up, although not the exponential growth that we were preparing for. And so that's another thing that you asked me is the surge predictions that we were doing. In the very early days, we were looking at some of the models that were put out by Chime and a few other sites that would take your current number of hospitalized patients, the population in your area, and the market share for your facility and try to predict when you were going to hit your peak and how many beds you were going to need for the ICU, how many beds you're going to need for your med surge patients. And when we did this in early March, when we only had two or three patients, it was showing that we were going to hit, we were going to need a thousand beds in the Memphis metro area for COVID-19 only patients. And so this wasn't even taking into account every other patient that needs to be hospitalized and certainly wasn't taken into account resuming elective surgeries or anything of that nature. You know, after looking at those models and comparing it to actual outcomes that we were having, we realized that those were, they weren't really realistic when you compared actual outcomes and, and number of hospitalized patients that were actually occurring in Louisiana and New York that were in the peak of their surges. They weren't seeing that number of patients being admitted to their facility. So I knew there that that likely wasn't going to reflect reality for us. Uh, maybe in, in the simulated model, it was closer to reality, but in the real world, something else was occurring. And so what we did was we took the peak number of patients that were hospitalized in the ICU in, in Wuhan, China at their peak, and we took the peak number of patients that were hospitalized and in the ICU in, in New York and Louisiana and um, normalized it based on our population. So I'm getting my numbers backwards right now, but I believe in, in Wuhan at the worst, they had three ICU patients for every 10,000 in their population. In New York, it was slightly less. It was more like 1.9 to 2. 
And those numbers may be slightly off. And so what we did was we prepared for what it would look like if we had that sort of surge in our area. So we took the population of Memphis uh, and we took that three per 10,000. And we did this for every one of our facilities and looked at what the maximum number of ICU patients could, would be if, if we got hit as hard as those areas. And we did the same for the hospitalized patients. And I'm blanking on the, the right number for that, but I think it was more like in the vicinity of 15 to 20 per 10,000 population. And so that gave us numbers to try to hit at each of our facilities and be able to have a plan to prepare for a surge of those patients. First is using those CHIME models that we're looking at your actual hospitalized patients and using the SIER model and, and trying to figure out based on the rate of growth in your area, what that maximum number would be. And, you know, after looking at what those numbers were for, for us based on that two to three per 10,000 range, we realized that we, we actually could have enough capacity. And so that was reassuring. Um, we would have to make some changes. We don't have to make available various staff. And so each facility worked on that surge plan and, and had that ready to go. And that's kind of how our, our surge modeling had evolved. We still did use one of the models, the rush model. One of the reasons we liked that is because you could tailor that a little bit to what you were seeing at your facility. You didn't have to use the exponential growth model. You could make it a little bit more linear, which is what we were seeing. And it tracked fairly well for a period of time, but at the same time, we were relying more and more on our individual case counts at our facilities and less and less on those uh, models that were out, out there in the wild. You know, one of the things that we've started doing more recently, which I think is tracking a little bit better, is looking at our number of outpatient cases and using that to predict our inpatient cases. So the inpatient cases tend to lag the outpatient by about a week or so. And so if we saw a big peak or a big surge on the outpatient side, that may make it make us try to prepare a little bit more on the inpatient side for an additional surge. And, and we've seen that because we're at our highest right now across the system for, for patient volume. And about a week or two before this, we had a large spike in outpatient cases. We're still seeing various outpatient spikes as well. So we anticipate that the inpatient side will, will stay relatively full until that dies down. That's very interesting, and we appreciate you keeping us prepared for those surges as they come. You mentioned telehealth earlier, and this has proved to be a valuable tool, and we're seeing increased utilization. So can you tell me a little bit more about telehealth and the quick execution throughout the system at the start of the pandemic? Sure. So there were really two efforts. There's the outpatient side and the inpatient side. On the inpatient side, what, what our strategy was, was we would expand our already available telehealth services and then add additional capabilities that we would need. So in the beginning, we had tele-ICU available. We had certain specialties that we're currently using telemedicine, like tele-infectious disease, tele-stroke, tele-behavioral health at certain facilities. And we were doing that all through this platform. It's called uh, Video, but it's spelled B-I-D-Y-O is the application. And so what we did as part of the phase one for the inpatient expansion was we just gave every physician and provider that needed it access to the ICU camera. So they could use that application and remote into these uh, sick patients in the ICU uh, across the system and, uh, and see these COVID-19 patients if, if they needed to. We took that same 
idea and mounted it on Surface Pros and, and put those on poles and stuck it in the non-ICU COVID-19 patient rooms. And so then uh, those same physicians and providers could remote into those non-ICU rooms and, and do the same, same process of being able to see those patients. We also gave the nursing staff and access by putting it putting a generic login at the nurse's station and putting a generic login in the provider rooms as well. And that would allow them to you know, check in on patients periodically without having to go in the rooms and, and use PPE. Early on in April, we were seeing about 700 visits a day. That has since declined a little bit to around the 400 visits a day. Not sure exactly why. I think part of it is providers just getting a little bit more comfortable treating the disease and and also just more secure that the PPE that's out there maybe is is working effectively for them and you know less there's less of a, a risk to get COVID-19 from the patient and then also we also resumed elective surgeries during that time period too and so there may just be more in-house that are more willing to, to go see those patients. Also, I've heard that the need for certain consults for some of these patients has declined a little bit since you just have a generally general more comfort with treating these patients. So that's the the inpatient side. We had to do a lot as far as building out note templates and, and guidance for how to use it. And so that was fairly busy in, in the early days, keeping up with the billing requirements and things of that nature, which I, I, I still struggle with, with what exactly you're, you're supposed to do when for, for some of those inpatient cases. On the outpatient side, you know, we had been rolling out the on-demand video visits. And so these were available in certain locations. And so we, we expanded that to all locations pretty quickly. And then we also expanded the non-on-demand, but the scheduled video visits so that any of the BMG providers that, that wanted to do that could do that. And that's through Epic. And, and that, that has worked really well. Um, again, we were seeing a, a high number of cases in April. I forgot the exact number that we were doing a day, but it was, you know, in some, some days it was maybe over a thousand. And that's declined as well since you know, more patients are, are coming in to see their provider and in clinic now that things have started to reopen. But it's still being utilized a lot more than it was in February when we were just getting started with it. And again, on the outpatient side, having to build out those those workflows, those note templates, and, and making sure that the billing was done correctly uh, is still an ongoing challenge. And we're still kind of in a murky area as to which of these uh, exceptions for telehealth are going to stick in the long run. Uh, who's going to pay for what and for how long? And so, thankfully, you know, there's the team that that's reviewing that on a day to day basis and, and making sure that the provider community is is aware of what they need to document. Certainly, and I know there are many benefits to this. There's been a positive patient response, and then increase in access, increase in interactions with the staff and the patient and then also conserving the PPE. Another word that I'm hearing often is artificial intelligence. Can you tell me what is AI and how we're using this throughout the system? Yeah, so artificial intelligence, it's essentially when you have a machine or a software program uh, do something that you would expect a, a human to do, um, it's a little bit simpler than that, though, and you've encountered artificial intelligence for a long period of time, and you probably haven't realized it as much. And so 
one of the ones that I like to use is the spam filter for Gmail or any of your email carriers has been using AI for a long period of time where essentially what it is using though is a type of machine learning called so there's two types of machine learning there's the supervised and unsupervised kind uh, with the supervised kind which is the most basic you have a a lot of data that you need to label into one or two categories and so if you think about your mail you would label that spam or not spam and so you would have a bunch of mail labeled as those two categories and you would feed it into this machine learning algorithm, this artificial intelligence generating machine. And based on those labels, it will come up with the rules that it needs to apply to a new set of data in order for those categories to, to make sense. And so you would take your, if you were training this algorithm, you would take your, that, that training set that you had labeled and based on that training set, your algorithm, your machine learning algorithm will develop the rules it needs. And then you would go apply it to the real world or to a, a secondary set of data that was also labeled to see how well uh, that new artificial intelligence had um, programmed its rules to to satisfy you know that categorization and so what are we doing with this within medicine um you know it's it's all over the place there are lots and lots of different algorithms out there what are we doing at baptist for it well, we started with one that is looking particularly at sepsis. And so we've been using a system, you know, the, the SERS criteria and SERS alerts for sepsis for a while. Um, those were fairly crude. Epic had come up with an algorithm um, based on some research that was done at other institutions, academic centers, to create an artificial intelligence algorithm for sepsis. It ingests a lot more data, looks at a lot more variables than the search criteria does definitely incorporates those criteria but it also looks at the patient's demographics their medications their diseases um, all of their labs and so on and so forth and it you know basically comes up with a, a scoring system and the higher you are on the score the more likely you are to have sepsis and we're we started with that pilot at golden triangle and we started that in december and it has gone on for a while and now we're just now spreading it to uh, Jonesboro. So we went live in the ED there and then one of their floors there a couple of weeks ago. And it has dovetailed into the COVID epidemic since those patients can develop sepsis, they can get very, very sick. And you know, the goal is to essentially help you identify patients that may be septic that you wouldn't have otherwise thought were septic. And we haven't had a chance to review all of the data on it yet because some of that mortality and outcomes data lags behind, you know, it takes several months to come back in through the claims process. But we, we have noticed at least a couple of instances where we were able to detect sepsis and otherwise it wouldn't have been detected. And so we were able to start treating earlier. And so that was good. One of the other things I, I liked about the, the project though, was that it was able, we were able to replace some of those SERS alerts with the smarter AI alerts. And so it was a little bit more sensitive, a little bit more specific, fired earlier than the, those alerts did. And so we were able to start treatment sooner for those patients. Dr. Lancaster, thank you for allowing us to hear from you today. I've learned a great deal. I do have a couple questions to close. So what is your vision for the future of informatics at Baptist? 
Yeah, so what I really want is I want every physician, every provider to know the, the process for how they can get changes in the system. Everyone who, who wants something changed, I want the, the physicians providers to think and know that they have a lot of control over these tools. Some may have given up many years ago and said it's just impossible to get anything done. These systems are a, a black box. They are incompatible with efficiency. They're, they're not how I practice medicine. And um, I'm just going to have to work a few more years until I can retire and finally get rid of the EMR. Um, I, I really don't want that. I, I don't want anybody to feel that way. I want them to know that if, if they feed their ideas or feed their change requests through our governance process that we tried to stand up over the last year or two, that hopefully they can get some changes that they need and that the system can respond to them. And that's really what I'm here for is to make sure that they're not struggling and that they can get changes that they want them. Um, not everything is possible and not every, it is a shared system. And so not every physician will agree with your change that you want to make. So we do have a governance group and we have several that meet, you know, one on the outpatient side, one on the inpatient side and one for alerts that meets on a monthly basis. The inpatient side is called our clinical content committee. Me, myself, and a couple of other doctors review those requests on a weekly basis and then present them to that larger group once a month where we go through each request and, and decide if it's something we want to do. And if it is, you know, what is the best way to do it? Uh, we recently started doing that on the ambulatory side back in, in January. It's a smaller group right now, and I'm really trying to recruit more people to do it. But we, we have a similar process where we'll take those change requests through that group. We started the same thing for alerts, the BPAs that you see. I want those to be as effective as possible and get rid of the ones that are being overridden 100% of the time. So we started a group that also looks at those once a month. And I'm obviously looking at this stuff on a day-to-day -day basis. But I really want physicians and providers to feel like they have the ability to change the system if it's not working for them. And that's my goal for the future and really just getting that knowledge out there that they can be part of this change if they would like to. We have many different options for all providers to take part in the system as much as they want to. So Epic has a bunch of courses that physicians can do depending on their level of interest. You know, really, you could you could spend several months up there if you wanted to learn all the ins and outs of, of Epic. But uh, the two basic levels that we're trying to see grow within our system are within our physician builder course and so what this is essentially teaches you how to be an analyst on the Epic side and build out all those notes, order sets, alerts, all those different things. And you can take those ideas you learn when you go up to Epic or actually over the next couple of months, you can do these all virtually since they're not having their on-site programs due to the COVID. But you can, you can join in one of our physician builder groups and, and help build things out for your specialty if you're interested. That's one thing we will be pushing pretty hard over the next year. Uh, we need to have about 20 to 25 providers be part of that physician builder program, and we currently only have about nine. So if you're interested, please reach out to me and I can get you set up. The other course that we have, or Epic has, that we are gonna be pushing is the Power User course. And this one just teaches you how to be a lot more efficient within Epic. And so it goes through basically every tip and trick possible out there to make you a super user. And so you take these from home, they are 
several hours long each and you need to do about seven or eight of them in order to get that physician power user certification if you're interested in that and that also you know really helps our system to to have that super user base that we can call on if we are looking to implement new projects or if you have new providers that are coming in that you need somebody to to walk through how to use the system it's always great to have that those groups but those those are two of the things that I really want to promote over the next year. And also, you know, we have the class survey that we've been running for the last three weeks that is going to give us a lot of feedback on what is working, what is not for our community. And we will take that feedback and, and make changes over the next year and really develop our program so we can better meet the needs of the community. So when does that survey, does that survey have an end date? It does. This so is the last week for it, and, and we're recording this on June 23rd. So now's your time to get your, your thoughts and recommendations in. These are great opportunities and that could potentially make your workflow easier. So reach out to Dr. Lancaster if you have an interest in any of those things. And my last question is, how does it feel to be on the other side? Do you prefer to be the guest or the host? I like to be the host because then I can write out exactly what I'm going to say. <laughs> and, but one of the great things about being the, the host, and I'm pretty sure I'm still going to have this opportunity, is I can go back in and edit anything I said and, and make myself sound a little bit smarter. <laughs> well, we appreciate all your efforts with informatics and then also for leading this podcast. This is a great method to obtain up-to-date information and CE credit. And as a reminder, there is a link to the survey and how to obtain that CE credit in the show notes. Thank you for joining today, and we will see you next time at Right Care with Baptist. Thank you.